Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Yak Talk, Hacking the Boards. I'm Ben. And I'm Yakov. And today we bring you a very special episode. It is our third soap note and our last cardiovascular lecture. So for our final episode of the CV dedicated episodes, we're going to do our classic soap note style. So that means we're going to do rapid fire question and answer to review the last few episodes since our last soap note. Specifically, we're going to be covering episodes 14 to 16 on hypertension, aortic dissections and aneurysms, peripheral artery disease, venous insufficiency, pericarditis, tamponade, dilated hypertrophic and restrictive cardiomyopathies, and a bunch of pharmacology. Oh my God, that sounds like a lot, but I think we're going to do it. Uh, It is a lot, but that's why we're going to jump right in. Yaakov, take us away. All right, starting with high yields from episode 14 on vessel diseases. So Ben, how do we diagnose essential hypertension, at least according to the boards? So you need multiple elevated blood pressure readings in different settings outside of just the clinic. So the answer on the boards can be something like repeat ambulatory blood pressure monitoring pretty often. And what are some risk factors for hypertension and which one is the strongest risk factor? Obesity is the strongest risk factor. Some other ones are family history, weight, sedentary lifestyle, and smoking. What's the pathophysiology of isolated systolic hypertension? That would be age-related arterial rigidity, aka reduced elasticity. And what are three categories of tests that we want to get in a newly diagnosed hypertension patient? One would be renal, second is endocrine, and third is cardiac. So let's dive into each of those. What renal labs would we order? Electrolytes, creatinine, and a UA. How about endocrine labs? An A1C or a fasting blood glucose, lipid profile, and a TSH. And how about cardiac tests? Definitely an EKG, sometimes an echo. Great. What's our first step in managing a newly diagnosed hypertensive patient? Lifestyle modifications. And what are five major testable lifestyle modifications for blood pressure reduction? One, DASH diet. Two, weight loss. Three, exercise. Four, sodium restriction. And five, alcohol reduction. And which of those are the two most effective at lowering blood pressure? First is DASH diet. And the second is weight loss greater than 10 kilograms. That's important. And which drug types are our first-line antihypertensives? Calcium channel blockers, thiazides, ACEs, and ARBs. What are two etiologies of functional renal artery stenosis? One is atherosclerosis, and the other is fibromuscular dysplasia. And which patients are at risk for uh, renal artery stenosis from atherosclerosis specifically? Diabetics and those patients with ASCVD in general. Nice. What population is generally affected by fibromuscular dysplasia? Women of reproductive age, so in that kind of uh, 20 to 40 range. Great. And how does renal artery stenosis lead to resistant hypertension? Essentially, overactivation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which increases vasoconstriction and blood volume. What is the other manifestation of renal artery stenosis related to that pathophysiology you just mentioned? That would be recurrent flash pulmonary edema. Yikes. Uh, And what is the characteristic exam finding in renal artery stenosis? In abdominal or periumbilical systolic diastolic brewery. Great. And how do we diagnose renal artery stenosis? Abdominal imaging, either ultrasound or CT. You would go for the CT, especially 
in fibromuscular dysplasia. Perfect. What are some signs of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease as the cause of a patient's secondary hypertension? Bilateral upper abdominal masses, meaning the large kidneys, family history of sudden death and resistant hypertension from uh, bearing aneurysms and uh, you know, from, from the polycystic kidney disease itself. Nice. What are some signs of hyperparathyroidism that lead to hypertension? Bone pain, kidney stones, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and GI distress. And what are some signs of hyperthyroidism uh, leading to hypertension? Weight loss, heat intolerance, hair loss, and tachycardia. Perfect. And what's the giveaway sign that hyperaldosteronism is the cause of a patient's hypertension? And what lab should we draw? So hypokalemia, in addition to resistant hypertension, points to hyperaldosteronism. And we should check a uh, renin-aldosterone ratio. Great. So moving away from hypertension, what is the classic presentation for an aortic dissection? Sudden severe tearing chest pain radiating to the back with tachycardia and possibly other signs of hemodynamic instability. Sure. And what's the greatest risk factor for aortic dissection? I thought you said we were done talking about hypertension, Yako. We're never done talking about hypertension, Ben. So uh, what is the characteristic x-ray finding in aortic dissection? A widened mediastinum. And how do we diagnose aortic dissection definitively? So that would be either transesophageal echo or a CT angio. Nice. And what are four major complications of aortic dissection? Acute aortic regurgitation, stroke from carotid dissection, cardiac tamponade, and hemothorax. All awful. Okay. And what's the treatment for aortic dissection? That would be IV beta blockers, especially labetalol. Nice. And when does the patient need surgery classically on exams? If the dissection involves the ascending aorta. How does thoracic aortic aneurysm differ in its presentation from aortic dissection? So the pain is less severe. It doesn't have that classic radiation and the vitals are generally normal. And what are the risk factors for a thoracic aortic aneurysm? Hypertension and age-related degeneration are the big ones, but also on exams, you'll see connective tissue disorders, which can increase risk. What are the risk factors for an abdominal aortic aneurysm or a AAA? Smoking is the biggest one because of atherosclerosis, uh, as well as male sex and older age. And who gets screened for AAA and how do we do that? So men between ages 65 to 75 with any smoking history get an abdominal ultrasound to screen for a AAA. Great. And now moving on to smaller vessels, what is peripheral artery disease? So that is when um, atherosclerotic narrowing of arteries in the extremities results in symptoms uh, and reduced blood flow. Nice. And what's the classic symptom seen in peripheral artery disease? That would be claudication, as in pain in the affected extremity with use. Nice. And what's the first step in diagnosing PAD, peripheral artery disease? Getting an ankle brachial index or an ABI, which will be low in the affected extremity. What other conditions are PAD patients at risk of? Any other atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, so coronary artery disease, stroke, renal artery stenosis, et cetera. Sure. So they're all connected. And how do we manage PAD patients initially? Aspirin, statin, smoking cessation, and a big one they like to test on is supervised exercise. Nice. What causes venous insufficiency? 
That would be age-related venous valvular degeneration. And how would a patient with venous insufficiency generally present? They would present with lower extremity edema without other signs of heart failure, tortuous superficial veins, possibly skin changes like dermatitis, or the classic ulceration of the medial malleolus. What are some risk factors for venous insufficiency? Obesity is actually the biggest one, along with a history of DVT. Nice. And finally, how do we manage venous insufficiency? Extremity elevation, increased exercise, and compression stockings tend to do the trick. Nice. So that's it for episode 14, High Yield. Let's move on to the next episode. Ben, take it away. Let's do it. So we're on episode 15, pericardium and cardiomyopathies. Yaakov, how does pericarditis generally present? So it depends on the etiology, but usually the patient will have pleuritic chest pain, which is improved with sitting forward. Great. And what are the four main etiologies of pericarditis they like to test us on? So viral, post-MI, uremic, and autoimmune pericarditis. And what's the classic heart sound in pericarditis? So in one way or another, the test question will describe a friction rub. And what is the classic EKG finding in most causes of pericarditis other than uremia? So typically you'll see diffuse PR depressions and or ST elevations. What's the treatment for pericarditis? So for all the etiologies but uremia, uh, we would turn to NSAIDs and colchicine. For uremia as the cause of pericarditis, we would give hemodialysis. Why do we get an echo in pericarditis, Yaakov? That's to evaluate for any sort of effusion around the heart. And what's the main concern with the pericardial effusion? The concern there is that cardiac tamponade will eventually develop. Let's jump into that. What is the pathophysiology of cardiac tamponade? So fluid accumulation in that pericardial space will increase pericardial pressure above the diastolic ventricular pressure. And how does tamponade classically present? Classically, you'll see Beck's triad, which is JVD, muffled or distant heart sounds, and hypotension. What's the other special physical exam finding in tamponade that you haven't mentioned? So you can see pulsus paradoxus, uh, which is a drop in systolic blood pressure during inspiration, and that drop is greater than 10. And what's the characteristic EKG finding in tamponade? Electrical alternans. Ooh, fancy. Mm -hmm, very fancy. What's the treatment for tamponade? That'd be a pericardiosynthesis. Moving on to a very special pericarditis. What are the etiologies of constrictive pericarditis that they like to test on? So for constrictive pericarditis, we think about a history of cardiac surgery, a history of tuberculosis, or any history of radiation therapy, especially to the chest. Nailed it. How does constrictive pericarditis present and why? The patient will present with essentially signs of right heart failure, such as JVD, ascites, lower extremity edema, and that's essentially due to an inelastic pericardium. Exactly. So what are two other physical exam findings that they like to test on constrictive pericarditis? So one is pulsus paradoxus, and another one is a pericardial knock. What are two physical exam findings that they like to throw into constrictive pericarditis question stems, but they don't really test on them? Right. So they'll usually throw in a Kussmaul sign and prominent X and Y descent on the JVP tracing. Hmm. How does constrictive pericarditis present on imaging? On imaging, you'll typically see spotting or ringed calcifications around the heart. Okay. Moving on to cardiomyopathies. 
what are four causes of dilated cardiomyopathy in medicine questions? So one is viral myocarditis. Number two is Chagas disease. Three is alcohol. And four is chemotherapy. How will a patient with DCM present? So they will show signs of biventricular systolic heart failure. So you'll see dyspnea on exertion, lower extremity edema, as well as pulmonary edema, an S3, and JVD. What is another physical exam finding you might expect in DCM, but not always? So you can, ex- you can sometimes see mitral regurgitation. So in that case, you would hear a holosystolic murmur at the apex. And what do we do for DCM patients? So we treat these patients uh, like we would treat a heart failure patient. So diuretics and guideline-directed medical therapy, uh, they might also need a heart transplant. Unfortunately so. What is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy and its classic imaging finding? So this is a stress-related acute heart failure, and the classic imaging finding is apical ballooning of the left ventricle. Nice. Shifting gears, what is the classic presentation of a patient with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or HOCAM? So this is classically a young person with syncope on exertion, oftentimes during sports. What is the pathophys of HOCAM? So HOCAM is a hereditary hypertrophy of the intraventricular septal muscle, uh, and that's leading to left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and all the symptoms and signs that we, that we see. And what's the classic murmur for HOCAM? You'll hear a holosystolic murmur and it'll be best heard at the left sternal border. And how do the different physical exam maneuvers affect the murmur? So this is important. Valsalva or standing will increase the murmur intensity. Hand grip or squatting will decrease the murmur intensity. Great, perfect. What kind of heart failure can hokum cause over time? So over time, hokum can cause diastolic heart failure. And what structural abnormalities can occur secondarily due to the hokum? So you can see left atrial dilation, which would actually predispose the patient to AFib. Nice. I love how you took it the next step there. Thank you. (laughs) What is the first line treatment for hokum? You would first turn to beta blockers. And which medication should be avoided in hokum? You definitely want to avoid vasodilators, especially nitrates. And what is another arrhythmia that hokum patients are at risk for other than AFib? That would be the feared VTAC, ventricular tachycardia. Lastly, for this episode, what is the pathophys for restrictive cardiomyopathy? So with restrictive cardiomyopathy, you get stiffening of the ventricles due to myocardial deposits of some kind. And what is the most tested cause of restrictive cardiomyopathy, those deposits you spoke about? So that would be amyloidosis. And what are some hints that the patient has amyloidosis? So typically, in addition to the restrictive cardiomyopathy, uh, the question stem will hint at proteinuria, anemia, or any sort of thick or waxy skin. They will definitely hint at one of those. (laughs) (laughs) What are some other causes of restrictive cardiomyopathy other than amyloid? So other things that cause deposits in organs, right? So sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis, and also scleroderma. And how does restrictive cardiomyopathy itself present? So there you'll classically see right-sided heart failure. So JVD, ascites, edema, but you won't really see lung involvement because the left ventricle is usually spared. And does restrictive cause diastolic or systolic heart failure? Diastolic, and that's due to decreased ventricular compliance. All right, on to our last episode to review of all of CV. Take it away. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, guys. We're almost there. So high yields from episode 16, which was our CV farm lecture. 
So Ben, what are the three main indications for starting someone on a statin as primary prevention? So if they have an ASCVD risk greater than 7.5%-ish, patients older than 40 with diabetes, and patients with LDL greater than 190. Great. And when do we use statins for secondary prevention? Any already established ASCVD, so kind of like we mentioned before, CAD, TIA, stroke, PAD. Nice. Who does and who does not get aspirin? So aspirin is added to statins as primary prevention in individuals between 50 to 70 and is always used with statins for secondary prevention. Nice. What is the most tested side effect of statin therapy? Myalgias. And what do you do if a patient has this side effect but doesn't have rhabdomyolysis? You can just reduce the statin intensity without necessarily discontinuing it. Nice. Which labs should you monitor in patients with that myalgia side effect? Creatine kinase, uh, as well as transaminases. And how do we treat someone with mild hypertriglyceridemia, as in triglycerides 100 to 500? So statins would also be the, the drug of choice here because of their cardiovascular benefits, as well as you could supplement with omega-3 fatty acids and definitely alcohol reduction or even cessation. So how would we treat a patient with moderate to severe hypertriglyceridemia, as in a patient with triglycerides above 500? So then you could consider adding a fibrate, and that's especially if the triglycerides are greater than 1,000, mm -hmm. to prevent pancreatitis. Nice. What's another triglyceride-reducing supplement we can provide, and what's its classic side effect? So niacin is good for triglyceride reduction, but it can cause a prostaglandin-mediated flushing reaction. And what are the four main drug classes which can cause orthostatic hypotension? So one, alpha-1 blockers, two, vasodilators, three, diuretics, and four, sympathetic antagonists. What's the pathophys for alpha blockers versus vasodilators in how they cause orthostatic changes? So alpha blockers decrease arteriolar contractility versus vasodilators decrease venous capacitance Great. So that's it for our orthostatics talk. Um, moving on to some toxicities, what are the five main systems that can be affected by amiodarone toxicity? Lungs, heart, thyroid, liver, and eyes. Oh gosh. Okay. And how can amiodarone affect the lungs and how would that present? So it classically causes interstitial pneumonitis, which presents with progressive dyspnea, cough, and ground glass opacities on chest x-ray. Great. And what about cardiac conduction abnormalities related to amiodarone? What are some of those? So on the one hand, it can cause bradycardia. On the other hand, it can cause QT prolongation and torsades. Sounds like the worst of both worlds. That's not good. And how can amiodarone affect the thyroid? Anyway, up, down, and sideways. Oh, wow. So, so really, it could just stretch your thyroid anyway. It could way. stretch your thyroid out. Wow. Wow. Uh, how about amiodarone and its effect on the liver? So it can uh, range from just elevated transaminases or full-blown hepatitis. Wow. And finally, uh, with the eyes, how can it affect the eyes? So optic neuritis or corneal microdeposits. Okay. So amiodarone, not a very clean drug. Moving on to a different drug, digoxin. How does digoxin toxicity generally present? Vague, nonspecific symptoms like GI distress, fatigue, and anorexia 
And then some maybe more specific neurologic side effects like color vision changes and confusion. And what are two medications which can actually result in digoxin toxicity? One is furosemide and the other one is, look at it again, amiodarone. Well, she just crawls into every single toxicity that she can get into. <laughs> Gosh. Um, what is an electrolyte abnormality which can lead to digoxin toxicity? Hypokalemia. All right. And what's the classic EKG finding for a patient, uh, even with normal levels of digoxin? That would be scooping of the ST segment. Great. And what about if the patient has toxic levels of digoxin? What kind of EKG changes would you expect? EKG can show it's kind of specific, but not necessarily sensitive to digoxin toxicity. Atrial tachycardia with second degree AV block. Nice. So let's finish up with antihypertensives. What are our first line agents for hypertension? ACEs and ARBs, calcium channel blockers, and thiazides. All right, let's talk about some comorbidities. So in what comorbid conditions are beta blockers useful for hypertension uh, management? Angina, post-MI, HEF-REF, AFib, and migraines. Great. How about what comorbid conditions are calcium channel blockers helpful in? So also angina, AFib, or migraines, but uh, on top of that, they're helpful in gout. Great. Uh, in what comorbid conditions would ACEs and ARBs be most helpful? So also like beta blockers, post-MI and HEFREF. On top of that, useful in diabetics and CKD for their renal protective qualities. ARBs are the best antihypertensives for gout. Nice. And finally, uh, what comorbid condition would you turn to thiazides? What are those helpful for? Osteoporosis due to the calcium resorption. Nice. Uh, when would we avoid thiazide diuretics? Kind of for the same reasons, frequent kidney stones or gout. And what is the main side effect of calcium channel blockers? Peripheral edema. Nice. What's the mild side effect that we classically think of with ACEs or ARBs? A bradykinin-related cough, more so with ACEs, but possible with ARBs. And why do we tend to avoid beta blockers as well as aspirin in patients with asthma? they can cause bronchoconstriction. Um, and what's a very serious side effect of ACEs and even ARBs and how is it managed? So that would be angioedema, also from bradykinin related mechanisms. And the patient often needs to get intubated, unfortunately. Gosh, all right. Well, on that note, that wraps up not only this episode, but the entirety of our cardiovascular chapter. Uh, join us next time for a journey into the unknown. 